the history of Florida sometimes seems to have been painted with a different brush than that which painted its surroundings. With a seemingly prehistoric landscape, filled, I might add, with actual living dinosaurs, Florida seems an awkward fit for its position, at the heart of the Americas. Despite its role in guarding the all-important Gulf Stream, Florida's main value to the Spanish during the Second Spanish Period was simply as a buffer. A big, empty nowhere, steadfastly avoided by everyone. It conveniently ensured that there was a lot of space between the Spanish and the newly independent Americans. But now, we're starting to see all that space become a critical release valve for tensions to the north. They say one man's trash is another man's treasure. And for many, caught up by violence in North America, a pristine wilderness where they could disappear and start over was impossible to put a price on. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 9, The Seminoles. By the early 1800s, Florida's air of mystery and foreboding was beginning to disappear. Thousands of Creeks and Europeans had passed through one part of the peninsula or another, fleeing from war. St. Augustine, still the capital of the territory, was a major city, and the entire coast of Florida had been accurately mapped by the British. The descriptions of the Florida interior were well worn into the books of naturalists and adventurers who vividly described the flat country covered in dense vegetation, inundated with alligator-filled waterways, and swarming with mosquitoes. In North Florida, however, where millions of years of Appalachian runoff covered the limestone bedrock in hundreds of feet of rich fertile sedimentation, the landscape was not all that unfamiliar to the intrepid pioneers at the southern frontiers of Georgia. Although Florida was technically back in Spanish hands after the British lost the American Revolution, in reality, the Spanish were almost completely absent. Sure, they had small garrisons at Pensacola and St. Mark's in the Panhandle, but with the once great Spanish Empire in ongoing decline, the territorial administration lacked the resources to project any type of force into the interior. Meanwhile, to the north, in the newly minted United States, while the landed class got busy nation-building, others found their world in turmoil. Exiled, displaced, or escaping peoples continued their slow exodus from the colonized hands of Europeans, people who saw Florida not as a second-rate wasteland, but as their best hope for a chance at freedom, and maybe a little bit of peace. Imagine being enslaved on some big plantation outside Savannah, and learning that only 100 miles away was a vast expanse of empty land that you could slip away to where there was nobody to stop you from making your own choices, and where your white captors were not even allowed to follow you. Of course, in the desperate conditions faced by many enslaved black people in the United States, it didn't matter if it was a hundred miles away or a thousand. 
the promise of freedom was worth the risk, and many made the attempt. Of course, this growing trend was intolerable for many American slave owners, and runaway slaves quickly became a major hot-button issue in U.S.-Spanish relations. The plantation economy of the southern states was built on slave labor, and the Americans bristled at any threat to their absolute control over the slave population. Angry at the Spanish for their failure to control their border, or even to lift a finger to capture and return escaped slaves in Florida, American civilians frequently scorned international law and launched unauthorized raids into northern Florida to recapture escaped slaves, often sacking any small settlements they came across. The Cape Florida settlement, far away on the shores of Biscayne Bay, remained largely undisturbed by all of this. Nearly 400 miles from the United States, the small community, led by the Bahamian families, the Egans, the Lewises, and the Pratts, led a peaceful and simple existence, sustained by the lucrative wrecking trade. But as we mentioned in Episode 7, of the thousands of runaway slaves that escaped to Florida, at least a few hundred made it all the way through the hot Florida wilderness to reach the Cape Florida settlement. And, with the help of the locals they met there, disappeared across the straits to the Bahamas. News of this would eventually reach the Americans, and historian Arvamore Parks sums up the results thusly. Quote, American animosity against Spanish Florida even reached the Cape Florida settlement. Once, Levi James, an American privateer from Savannah, attacked the settlement under the excuse that he was teaching, quote, the Spanish rascals to keep their place. End quote. The fact that the people whose houses he burned were not Spanish was of little consequence. They lived on Spanish land, and that was enough. When the residents resisted, James flayed William Lewis with a cat of nine tails and, quote, almost deprived them of his life. End quote. Levi James, having completed his vicious attack, left the people of the Cape Florida settlement to pick up the pieces and rebuild their homes perhaps taking shelter in the wrecking boats at Key Biscayne in the meantime. But with this traumatic experience behind them, life in Biscayne Bay returned to normal. For now. Back up north, the tides of history were swelling yet again. Florida was not only a refuge for runaway slaves. In truth, Florida had been far from empty for some time. Another people had been quietly making a home there for many decades, these were the displaced descendants of the Creek natives and their many related tribes, a people who would become a fundamental part of Florida, and who would come to be known as the Seminoles. We've mentioned them several times already, but it's time we introduce them properly. The population of displaced natives in northern Florida had already been growing slowly for about a hundred years. Starting after the Yamasee War in 1715 saw bands of Yamasee and Yuchi flee British encroachment along coastal Georgia and South Carolina. These were people of the Creek bloodline, and other displaced Creeks soon followed, making their way down the desolate peninsula and, as we learned previously, helping bring about the end of the original native populations of Florida. For hundreds of years, the slow trickle of Creek peoples into Florida saw the establishment of several new communities, particularly in North Florida. But despite their quest for solitude, they could not avoid getting caught up in European politics. 
Before the French and Indian War, the Spanish had made many overtures to the Florida Creeks, encouraging them to fight against the British and Spanish militias. But these Creeks quickly gained a reputation for being fiercely independent. Like so many Native Americans of the time, they had learned the ways of the white men, and they did not consider Europeans their friends, and they refused to fight for anyone but themselves. Around the 1730s, a Creek chief, Ahaya Sekofi, relocated his people to the area that is now known as Payne's Prairie, just south of Gainesville, a place where they found a wealth of game and fish, along with a large population of wild cows to tame, eventually leading the English to nickname him Cowkeeper. The Cowkeeper hated the Spanish and frequently took up arms against them. He and his people identified themselves as Yatsiminoli, which in the Hichiti language translates roughly to free people. The phrase was a message to anyone they met that they were different from their cousins who had remained in the traditional Creek homelands. Now the sources are a little unclear about this, but the word Yatsiminoli may actually be derived from the Spanish word cimarones, which roughly translates to runaways or castaways. What's clear is that many Spanish and English assumed this was where the word came from. The Hichiti term Yatsiminoli and the Spanish cimarones eventually coalesced into the name Seminole, a name that came to be associated with all the natives who had migrated to Florida, and a name which those natives embraced as a part of their new distinct identity. See, a fascinating thing happened in Florida during the 18th century. It's a process which has happened countless times throughout history, but is arguably the source of all the world's diversity. The experts call it ethnogenesis, the emergence of new peoples and cultures that had never existed before. The Seminoles sought to differentiate themselves from the Creeks, and they did this in deed as well as in word. The Yamasee, Yuchi, and other Creek cousins who settled in Florida mixed with one another and found a place in this new society. Adapting to the hotter and muggier environment of Florida, they developed their own style of dress and ways of building, and all the other things that make a unique culture. The Seminoles even incorporated runaway slaves and their descendants into their society, creating a subgroup that came to be known as the Black Seminoles. Some of the Black Seminoles were held as slaves, but the Seminoles did not practice the chattel slavery that was present in the American South. Instead, the relationship resembled more of a feudal system, whereby black Seminoles were allowed to live in their own villages, own land, and even keep weapons in return for paying taxes and providing men whenever the Seminoles went to war. The Seminoles spoke a language of the Hichiti family, and this is the large language family of the southeastern Creeks that gives us all those familiar place names like Tallahassee, Appalachie, and Okeechobee. Hichiti is considered a dialect of the Mikasuki language, originally spoken by the Mikasuki people of northwest Georgia. A large minority of the natives who moved through Florida identified themselves as Mikasuki. And though they were lumped in with the Seminoles most of the time, they considered themselves a separate people. They were more conservative than their cousins and stuck more closely to long-practiced traditions. Within a generation of cowkeepers' arrival, 
the Seminoles no longer identified themselves as part of the Creek Nation. And when the British took over control of Florida from the Spanish in 1763, the British even recognized them as a separate tribe, to the enormous satisfaction of the by then grizzled chief cowkeeper. So in this way, the Seminoles became a strong and distinct people in their own right, and were recognized as such by all the major European powers. They were the new Floridians, and their identity would forever be tied to the peninsula. The Seminoles will be woven into the tapestry of many of our upcoming episodes. The next several decades of Florida history will be dominated by the conflicts that were brought to Florida and the doorstep of the Seminoles by the fledgling United States. Like the Tequesta before them, the Seminoles would not find Florida to be a lasting refuge from the troubles they'd hoped to avoid. The Seminole Wars began, depending on how you measure these things, in 1817, with a Seminole attack on an American supply boat on the Apalachicola River. Although the First Seminole War would be confined to the northernmost reaches of the territory, it would be followed by the Second and Third Seminole Wars, which would bring unrest to the shores of Biscayne Bay. In all, the United States would spend more than $40 million fighting the three wars, an enormous sum at the time. Indeed, it was the costliest war against Native Americans the United States has ever fought, and it would be the only U.S. conflict against Native Americans that involved the Army, the Navy, and the Marines, a testament to the tenacity of the Florida Seminoles. The causes of the First Seminole War are complicated, it's one of these cases where history did not create a neat little sequence of cause and effect, but rather a bunch of different factors came together into an unstoppable force that pushed all the players over the brink. But we can boil it down to a handful of primary factors, chief among them being the runaway slave issue, the Spanish dereliction of any meaningful administration of North Florida, and the Seminoles' refusal to be bound by agreements that had been made by their Creek cousins. We can also sprinkle in a little bit of that American manifest destiny. The fledgling nation's self-proclaimed right to dominate its surroundings, which would eventually see it conquer 3 million square miles of North America stretching all the way to the coast of California. The details of the First Seminole War are a bit mind-numbing. It is perhaps best to start at the end of the War of 1812, a sort of rematch between the British and the United States, which cemented the United States' reputation as a formidable foe. While the details of the War of 1812 are beyond the reach of our story, suffice it to say that it saw the White House get burned down and gave us the Star-Spangled Banner. Both sides ultimately decided to just be friends. When the war ended and the British evacuated their troops, they left behind a fortress full of runaway slaves and Choctaw natives on the Apalachicola River in the Florida Panhandle. The black and Native American inhabitants had been armed by the British, and Negro Fort, as it became known, became a huge thorn in the side of the Americans. Meanwhile, the War of 1812 had brought Colonel Andrew Jackson, future President of the United States, onto the world stage when he defeated a Creek uprising and forced the Red Stick Creeks to relinquish 23 million acres of territory to the Americans in Georgia and Alabama. 
Many tribes in those territories who identified more closely with the Seminoles and Mikasuki than they did with the traditional Creeks considered the treaty to not apply to them, and they soon began to protest American settlement. In 1816, tensions over Negro Fort boiled over in a series of attacks and counterattacks that ended with the fort being blown up, along with the roughly 250 men, women, and children who inhabited it, when a hot shot of cannonball struck the fort's gunpowder stores. A year later, American attacks on the Mikasuki in southern Georgia and Alabama drove the Seminoles to retaliate. They attacked an American supply boat carrying women and children on the Apalachicola River, killing nearly everyone on board. This attack, known as the Scott Massacre, was the breaking point. Throughout all of these events, the Spanish, who were theoretically in charge of the place, had completely failed to exercise any type of control over the troublesome events in their territory. And Andrew Jackson, by now a general, decided it was time to take matters into his own hands. He ordered a full-on invasion of North Florida and spent about six weeks crisscrossing the Florida panhandle, sacking every Seminole village in his path, massacring natives along the way. In West Florida, the Spanish governor in Pensacola put up a feeble defense against Jackson's forces before surrendering the city after only a couple of days, effectively handing over control of the territory. The First Seminole War was swift and brutal. In the aftermath, the Spanish expressed their outrage in no uncertain terms, but they were powerless to muster any kind of force to retake West Florida. Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, being a keen diplomat, seized the opportunity to turn Jackson's small victory into a big win for the United States. Pointing out the Spanish inability to govern Florida, Adams tactfully finagled the deal to take that cumbersome territory off their hands for a bargain price. Along with some platitudes about how terribly sorry the U.S. was for this whole unfortunate affair. The Adams-Onis Treaty, signed in 1819, officially transferred Florida to the United States, and it was the last trade Florida would ever undergo. It was still not a state, but it was now a U.S. territory, all the way down to Biscayne Bay. With the first Seminole War over and Florida in its hands, the U.S. proceeded to treat the territory with an attitude we're becoming all too familiar with. A sort of, eh, there's no rush here. Administrators the federal government sent to govern Florida yearned to get out as quickly as possible, and turnover was high during the first several years of territorial administration. This left the defeated Seminoles in a tight spot. Florida, their safe haven from the Americans, had suddenly lost all hope of security and freedom. They were forced to the negotiating table, but were rarely able to talk to one governor for long before he left for greater glory, and the Seminoles had to start all over with his replacement. Eventually, a census was conducted, with the Americans counting 22,000 Seminoles and 5,000 slaves held by the Seminoles, and an agreement known as the Treaty of Moultrie Creek came together to relocate the Seminoles to a nice, big, empty piece of the less nice part of Florida. 
a piece of land that the United States made sure was completely landlocked to prevent the Seminoles from trading with Cubans or Bahamians. The treaty, signed in 1823, delineated a 4-million-acre reservation in the center of the peninsula, stretching from today's Ocala south to a line parallel with Tampa Bay, an area that encompasses modern-day Orlando. The agreement obligated the Americans to help with the move, but they dragged their feet providing supplies. The first Seminoles to move to the reservation found it inhospitable, and moved back up north. Eventually, the Americans established fortifications in central Florida to oversee the move. They sent troops and delivered meager supplies to the Seminoles. Five years after the treaty had been signed, the Seminole relocation was completed. By this point, the younger generation of Seminoles had seen their people completely stripped of their land in North Florida and experienced atrocities at the hands of General Jackson and the U.S. Army. They had seen widespread destruction and misery and would learn valuable lessons about how to deal with the American menace. This would only be the beginning. A whole new dynamic had taken shape in Florida. In their attempt to contain the bothersome Seminoles, the United States had created a ticking time bomb. And while General Jackson may have caught the natives off guard during his first campaigns in North Florida, the Seminoles were now on notice. Next time, they would be prepared to act with a ferocious determination that would catch an entire nation by surprise. Ah!